What's up, everybody? Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Before I get going, I need to make a little announcement. As some of you know, I was running a substack called Nuclear Barbarians. That has now turned into just a podcast, and it's part of a three times a week energy newsletter that covers the entire energy sector. So if you want that for free in your inbox and you want to support that little effort I'm making to make these things more expensive, uh, accessible and actually curate the news for people along with providing commentary, you can sign up for free in the show notes. I'd appreciate it a lot. And if you're a first time listener and you're here because the guest I'm about to announce is here, welcome. Hope you stick around. And without further ado, uh, I'm happy to bring aboard Mr. James Lynch. James, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm awesome. So I can't even remember how you and I started talking. To be honest, I think I found one of your articles on the American conservative about nuclear energy right around when I was starting to get into that. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. And then you started sending me some of your writing because you've gotten pretty regular stream of stuff coming out at Newsweek. And then I found out you worked over at Breaking Points and just seeing you post, reading your writing, I was like, this dude's sharp. I want to talk to him some more. He sounds like he has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in politics in America and you're a good guy to have on. So welcome. Yeah, I'd like to think I have my finger on the pulse. I mean, obviously... One of the reasons why nothing can get done seemingly is because the people who want to get stuff done don't know what's going through the, the minds of people who are actually affected most by the decisions that get made. So yeah, work for breaking points, but views on this are all mine independently. Yeah, just totally. To clear You're not that speaking yeah. on behalf of <laughs> yeah. that show. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, not at all. Not and at all. then I've been doing some stuff for Newsweek because Bacha Ungar Sargan, who's one of the opinion editors there, she really likes the show. So she reached out to me about it. And then I sent her a couple of pitches and that's turned into some pretty solid articles. And I've been happy about that. So I've written about the media mostly and Dr. Fauci and a couple of other topics, <laughs> working class topics, like from a kind of a populist angle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I've really enjoyed that. Just, you know, not really sparing anybody looking at things from a pretty holistic, straight shot, straight shooting point of view. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was running the Nuclear Barbarian Substack, one of the first things I did was share out one of your pieces on Fauci and like basically how dishonesty has been. And I can tell you that immediately got a bunch of not so happy responses, people in my inbox, but I thought it was a, it was a sharp piece. So let me ask you, you and I've talked about this privately a little bit before, but like, just tell us about your background. Like, where are you from? How did you end up where you are? Yeah. So my background's pretty unique. I grew up in New York city. So I was always political as a kid. Like my parents are both lawyers. So I, even going back to when I was in third grade, fourth grade, like the Obama election in 2008 was a big deal for me as a kid. And then, yeah, so when you see that happen and you're a little kid, you kind of think that there is hope out there and things can change for the better. And I knew, Bush, change, was, I knew, baby. I, I knew Bush was really bad and mm-hmm. everybody was all excited about what Obama was going to do. And then 
and then I remember my opinions were, weren't really formed yet when Obama was getting reelected. And ironically, I actually wrote a letter to Joe Biden when I was in middle school. So I was a pretty typical kind of <laughs> liberal type, but I was a, a kid. So my opinions weren't really formulated yet. Yeah. And then Bernie came around in 2016 and I started reading stuff for myself online. I got pretty deep into conspiracy type pages. I wasn't like a 9-11 truth or anything, but I became pretty skeptical of institutions like the deep state when I was around 15, 16, reading Glenn Greenwald, Chris Hedges, Matt Taibbi. Totally. So then yeah, that's really when I started getting my own views on things. So I was kind of on, a, on the left, if you, if you could say that. You know, I liked the 2016 Bernie campaign and a lot of the messaging that he brought to the table. And so that's where I was for a while. But I, after the, I felt the primaries rigged against Bernie, that Democrats had tipped the scales towards Hillary. You know, I was very nihilistic for a while after that. And I didn't really care that much anymore at the beginning of the Trump presidency. Like I remember when on election night, when Trump won, I went to sleep before it even ended, mm -hmm. before it was even called, because I, I had basically given up mm -hmm. because I really did feel like Bernie had the election stolen from him and there was no point in following any of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then I, I didn't really follow it that much for a while through my freshman year of college. Yeah, I went to school at Notre Dame, like Fighting Irish. Say what you will about that institution or our football team, but <laughs> yeah, I went there and my freshman year there, I slowly got back into it just because some of the stuff that was going on with Trump and then the big Obamacare fight, you know, I felt like I care about what's happening in my country, even if I feel like I can't really do anything on a personal level that I should at least be aware of what was going on. So I kind of kept going in that same alley that I was in before the Greenwald left-wing style people of the world. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very into them. You know, I read people like Lee Fong, Michael Tracy, and I was a pretty solid left-wing guy, but I was never a partisan hack really or like i never bought into russiagate first of all right right I could always always pride myself on that one never <laughs> bought into russiagate yeah took a lot of heat over the years for that and yeah actually i remember the day that the Mueller report came out and they said that there was nothing because i felt very vindicated on that day and yeah i I've, i'm never gonna, gonna forget it just because so many people in, in my orbit were bought into the Russiagate idea and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I felt very vindicated by this reflexive skepticism that I had towards the media narratives, towards intelligence agencies, mm -hmm. towards Obama and Hillary and a lot of the powerful people. So yeah, I was a left-wing guy and that was, then Bernie came around again in 2019-ish and I was a supporter of that, but I got really into it. So I decided that I would change my, yeah, so I started, I changed what I was studying 
started doing solely poli sci in, in school. I was very into the Bernie campaign and I thought Bernie had a real shot to win. And I thought Bernie could do a lot of really good things on the economic level, but then some of the cultural and identity stuff that we saw play out in the Bernie campaign started. And I kind of started to question what was going on there because there's a theory that's been presented. There's a really good American Affairs article. Set the by one by Michael Tracy and Michael Angela Tracy Nagel. and Angela Nagel, yeah. And then Shant Mizrobian kind of wrote a follow-up about a similar sort of topic about how cultural wokeism defanged the whole Bernie Sanders project, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I started to see that with the 2020 campaign. And I was still a supporter, but then COVID hit and Biden won. I, Bernie lost pretty fairly, I thought. Like there was no r- real shenanigans there. Mm-hmm. Bernie just, I mean, the, the establishment came together behind Biden, no question about it. Sure. Obama making backroom phone calls, the media lining up uniformly for Biden after South Carolina, and then everybody else dropping out. But when it comes to the actual vote numbers, it wasn't like 16 where in states like Kentucky and, and New York and Arizona, there's all this shady business going on. Bernie Sanders lost in 2020. Yeah. And he lost even though he had a massive fundraising apparatus with as much name recognition as you could possibly hope for. And everybody knew who Bernie was, what he was about, and he didn't win, plain and simple. So, like, the Bernie movement kind of was over, so mm-hmm. I, I slipped back into that nihilism feeling again, and I was questioning everything. And, you know, I, I was trying to reevaluate a lot of where I came from just because that's what you should do when you don't win. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I never felt like it was right to blame everybody else when you lost. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Clinton people did in 16. And so mm-hmm. I saw a lot of that with Bernie folks blaming all these outside forces and not really doing any self-introspection. So I just was doing that after the campaign, reading a lot. And then, so this was in the summer of 20. COVID had hit. I got depressed pretty bad during COVID. Really? I was in Why? New York. I was in New York. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was in New York City. So it was locked down and I was doing a virtual semester. And yeah, I didn't really have much going for me at that point. Mm-hmm. I didn't, like, life was not fun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got pretty sad. And that was another reason I started really evaluating core principles was just because I was like, because at the beginning I was pretty supportive of the pandemic restrictions just mm-hmm. because I felt like this could, this virus was a really, really dangerous Mm-hmm. disease and we need to fight it and do what the scientific community is telling us to do but then yeah then I started to become skeptical because I obviously started feeling personal effects mm-hmm. of pandemic policy you know I felt like and I saw what was happening in New York City and the effects that lockdowns had on towns across America so <clears throat> 
I started to become skeptical of that. And then, so you, you can see the theme of skepticism building up and questioning. Yeah, I mean, let me ask you this. Like, so after, you know, you have a moment of despair after 2016 and you come out of that, you get really committed to burning in 2020. And then, you know, Bernie loses. Like, that's just what happens, you know? I mean, I think he officially throws in the tower partway through 2020, but like the writing was on the wall, I think by the opening of that year before COVID that like this was not going to pan out. And then you start after COVID closes down, like questioning core principles again. What types of questions were you asking yourself? Well, I was just asking myself, you know, what do I really, because the whole idea of the burning campaign was that there is going to be this massive working class left-wing revolt, if you will, democratic revolution. And that didn't pan out really because I was looking, I looked through a lot of the data and working class whites supported Pete Buttigieg in Iowa, mm-hmm. right? Working class black folks supported Biden. Mm-hmm. Bernie did much better with the college educated types, the managerial elite types. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how Bernie is able to raise so much money is that, yes, he got small dollar f- funds. Plenty of them were from the working class, which was legitimate. Bernie mm-hmm. did have plenty of working class support, but also a lot of managerial types mm-hmm. giving money to the campaign. People who work at institutions like nonprofits and left wing think tanks and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I started to realize the Bernie movement was a little less organic than I felt. And they were not as quite in touch as they fancy themselves and you know when someone tells you they're inevitable and then they fail mm-hmm. you know you realize that you really have to be a little more critical of things yeah no matter how passionate you are about it and then so all the skepticism had been building and I was always a pretty skeptical guy and then for me in June of 2020 is when the dam broke mm-hmm. and we all know what happened in June of 2020 And the thing is, this kind of progressed throughout the month Mm -hmm. of June and through July. It's it's a pretty difficult thing to go through when a lot of your views become more nuanced or change on certain issues. Mm -hmm. But yeah, basically, well, because the BLM protesters were, at first, I was supportive of it. I think most of America was supportive of it because I felt... Like the George Floyd thing was really bad and mm-hmm. his killing was horrifying to watch in that yeah, video. Totally. Absolutely. And then there was the very strong crackdown in Minneapolis at first. Mm-hmm. And then the night, so I was, I was supportive of that. And even when they rioted that first night and they burned down the precinct, mm-hmm. obviously I didn't think they should have been going as far as burning down a precinct and burning buildings down and but looked to be a pretty modest neighborhood but i was still kind of supportive of it like i i went it made sense to you at least yeah like as like as as like a reaction yeah i understood the the anger that Mm -hmm. went into that and so then i went to i went to a peaceful one of the blm marches yeah full disclosure i went to one like i was still supportive (laughs) of it totally The, the week that really changed everything for me was when the shenanigans started in Portland. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I kind of became more skeptical because I I saw the 
the violence and the looting and I saw the targeting of working class areas and all mm -hmm. the chaos. And that's when I started to become repulsed by it because, you know, and then I started thinking about it and there's a really good Zed Jelani was talking a lot about the left case against defunding the police. And so mm -hmm. I took that view of like, if you're a left-wing person who's dissatisfied with a government service, especially one that has a strong public sector union and employs a lot of working class people, very diverse group mm -hmm. of people. Intuitively, you would think based on how left-wing people typically view government services, that if you have a problem with how something's functioning, you'd want to give it more funding, right? Like with schools, yeah, for example. and perhaps reform it. Yeah, yeah. Schools is an is a perfect example where, because the argument for teachers unions and police unions, as much as they get caught up in the culture war, mm -hmm. the arguments there's a lot of similarities between the two, and I think that plenty of the arguments made by the left against police are what the arguments the right makes against teachers unions. But remember, this was in 2020 before. Mm -hmm. teachers held children hostage in schools for an entire year mm -hmm. so and so then I was completely opposed to defunding the police and then I saw the crazy stuff that was going on in Portland with the jazz I thought it was a total LARP I thought it was totally ridiculous and that it wasn't a working class movement it was fake mm -hmm. it was you know, if this was what the left was going to be after Bernie I wanted no part of it mm -hmm. I thought it it was it was out of touch it was it was protesting in a manner that benefited the regime mm -hmm. benefited elites took a lot of money from elites and so when I saw that I was I basically went back to square one right I had I I had to I spent the next few months even going into my senior year pretty obsessively trying to figure out where I really stood on everything again, because at that point I was like, everything I thought about the left was, is, was pretty much a fraud. And I felt like I got conned out of a few years there. Yeah. So let me ask you, like, I have like a couple questions about this. Cause I think it's really interesting. You know, it's rare that, you know, there are like open conversations about people coming to change their mind or especially how like young people respond to the world, right? Usually it's sort of like an astroturfed, you know, like I learned about so-and-so and now I'm like a hawk or like now I'm like, you know, abolish all borders person or whatever. But when you're having this experience, like what did it mean to go back to square one? Like, did you start reading different things? Did you start talking to different people? Did you start having confrontations with your peers? Like what's going on for you? Yes, doing all that? of those types. Of all things of those happen. things. Yeah. So why don't you walk me through those? What, so, let's yeah. start with what you started reading. So it was obviously late June. I w went back to square one. You know, I said, there's only really a few people I can trust now. And those were the people who I'd been reading before who I thought, didn't give up their principles in support of BLM. Like I, I saw Greenwald, Greenwald had a really great article at the time about how the public health response flipped overnight. Yeah. And that, that was, was another totally area true. where I yeah. became completely uh, nihilistic on and, and didn't, because the public health response to BLM was really pretty egregious. The mm -hmm. total 180 that happened because of the elite 
support for the BLM movement. Mm-hmm. Like that's that that's how my deep skepticism and lack of support for the COVID regime began. Mm-hmm. It was because like it was the about face showed that it was to me, it showed at the time that it was all a farce. Mm-hmm. All of the COVID theater was a total farce because if you could flip it that easily, lie mm-hmm. about it during the BLM protests and then flip back, you know, none of it was real. None mm-hmm. of it was being done for the sake of actually protecting people. Yeah, it was and, just arbitrary, right? It was yeah, just, it was totally yeah. arbitrary, not evidence-based. You know, it was done to make people feel better instead of mm-hmm. to, and obviously I'm vaccinated and I got the vaccine pretty quickly. And I'm supportive of all that, but you know, I do understand where the skepticism of vaccines comes from because mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies do have very malicious intent. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, I went down a strange journey I ended up, I ended up staying, I would say philosophically pretty populist on the economic front, mm-hmm. but I had a pretty big shift on the cultural front. You know, mm-hmm. my views of the democratic party became even more cynical, mm-hmm. became much more critical of the left. And I, yeah, I think I became pretty independent from that point forward. Yeah. I started reading people like Michael Lind, mm-hmm. who I highly recommend. Yeah, his, new, his, his book, The New Class War, is uh, pretty excellent. Yep. Yeah. One of one of the formulative books for me mm-hmm. is The New Class War. And then yeah, Julius Krein, I started listening to Sagar a lot because I felt like he was one of the only honest actors during all of this. Mm-hmm. Ironic, I, which would be kind of ironic because in September, when I was very much aboard like the populist train again, and mm-hmm. I was all... I was excited. That's when I got in, that's when I got in, in touch with the realignment and mm-hmm. started there, which was another important event. But going back to where I was in July, let's say, I was reading a lot of blue labor people. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the like pond. Eddie Dempsey. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Because blue labor is, you know, they're very communitarian type people. Mm-hmm. They're very pro-worker populist. But then on the cultural stuff, they're EU skeptic. They're not bought into a lot of the racialization and collective guilt type of stuff that was being right. pushed by the media at that time. So then I was reading them. Patrick Deneen, who would end up mm-hmm. being a professor of mine at Notre Dame, I was mm-hmm. reading. Orrin Cass, I started reading. I was still reading a lot of Greenwald, Taibbi, Zed Jelani, mm-hmm. as I said. So, nat- so I became kind of an pretty independent-minded populist, you know, cultural, on a lot of the cultural issues, I took stances that are now right-wing, like supporting police officers and mm-hmm. you know, wanting the schools to reopen, like right. stuff that, yeah, I, ironically stuff that based just on foundational principles should be left-wing, like, mm-hmm. because left-wing people should want schools to function as well as they possibly can and mm-hmm. for and for there to never be the possibility that wealthy oligarchs and large corporations buy their own private security while everybody else is left to do, out to dry. Yeah. So yeah, that's that was the sphere I was floating around in. And then I I reached out to Sagar on social media, just asking him a few questions and telling him that I liked his work because I as I was saying, I felt like he was one of the few people, you know, I was 
I was watching Rising at the time, and I, I had been for a while. Mm-hmm. So I, I did also really respect where Crystal is coming from. Yeah. So for people who don't but, know, Sagar and Jetty and Crystal, what's her last name? Ball. Well, Crystal Ball were the hosts of The Rising. I think it's Ryan Grimm and somebody else now. And then they left to yeah. go do their own thing called Breaking Points now. And the the shtick is that Sagar is sort of a right populist and that Crystal's a sort of a left one, whatever those terms are supposed to mean. Yeah, now I'm work for breaking points now. So that, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the long story because long story does have a really positive ending. Mm-hmm. And so now I was, I got an internship with the realignment that I w- that I did for a few months, mm-hmm. and that went really well, and I really enjoyed it, and got exposed to some great people, and really kind of confirmed a lot of the very populist but also independent and skeptical views that I was mm-hmm. building. So then I was working for them part-time as my graduation was coming around and they were going off and doing breaking points and they said they needed somebody to manage a lot of what happens behind the scenes. So they brought me in for that. And it's been really fun ever since. Mm-hmm. And my views are pretty aligned with what we have on the show, which is, which is nice. A lot of people my age have to give up some of their integrity for their employment and for their institutions, but I don't have to do that. And yeah, I know, I know that was a very long answer, but that's the very, very long explanation of how I ended up. Yeah. So I got, no, I like that. I think that's important. It's an important thing to sort of watch happen because, you know, the way it seems to work is the media will report on like what they think is the case. And by that, I mean, like, it is as if these partisan categories and things like this remain static and then the world has to be sorted into them rather than there being people, I think probably especially young people that reformulate their views in response to things as they unfold. And it's not just the sway of public opinion, but it's people actually trying to figure out the world around them. You know, like one of the questions that I have while listening to all of this is like, what do you notice in your peer group in terms of political stance? What seems to be the conventional wisdom, whether you disagree with it or not, you know, maybe another thing, but what have you noticed as as you've gone through these changes? Have people made the journey with you or departed from your life or, or, or what have you seen? Yeah. So when it comes to, because there's a few questions in there. So when it comes to, yeah, sorry, that was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, you know, when it comes to the people in my generation, I mean, I, I'm part of Generation Z. I'm one of, I'm on the older side of Generation Z. And a lot of the worst fears that you get, those exist. Those definitely exist on college campuses with the woke stuff and a lot of the anti-American sentiment and opposition to foundational principles like free speech. That's very much a very real thing. My generation also is very skeptical of a lot of old establishment institutions. They are, you know, they're very much change-oriented people. They almost uniformly want some kind of wealth redistribution program. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my generation is on the left politically and sports Democrats, but they're not the type of boomer hacks or blind partisans, it seems. But there's a lot of skepticism of Democrats on the left too. And I think 
So I think a lot of the cultural stuff going on is very distressing and very real and is actually getting worse as wokeness becomes stronger and stronger and more dominant and develops more cultural hegemony in our elite institutions. But I think there is a bright side to it because obviously wokeness is very, is an ideology that at the end of the day is funded by and supported by and primarily benefits elites. But there is still amongst the dominant woke left ideology of my generation, a real skepticism of power centers. So I think that not all hope is lost. And then that's a very generous perspective that I think a lot of yeah, people. Don't yeah, have. I think I think people deserve because there's a lot of very real grievances that my generation has that I feel in my daily life and that even right wing Gen Zers and millennials can empathize with like mm -hmm. the conservatives coming up now, the new ones are much different on a lot of the economic questions than mm -hmm. their fathers and grandfathers are. So I think even on the right, you're seeing a shift in how people view the economic questions that you know, is very generational just because the world that people like myself came through so far is not the same as the one that existed in previous times. So I think on the cultural front, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty alarming, but I'm not really a doomer per se. Mm -hmm. And I think people deserve to be looked at with nuance mm -hmm. and people's grievances need to be fully understood and listened to instead of written off or kind of mocked or viewed as silly just because the aesthetic appearance can be very Rating. strange. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. So I think that's a savvy critique, but also appreciation for sort of what the broad left of your generation has to offer. I mean, as a millennial, you know, we were sort of like a test subject for web 2.0. So it's, which I would describe as like probably deeply unfortunate in the long run. I think you guys might be a little bit more savvy as media consumers than we were. And that's really important in the political realm. But I'm wondering what's, do you have a similar like uh, critique of, but also appreciation for what's happening on the right? And if so, what's it like, what do you think their shortcomings are? Where do you think they're really succeeding right now? Yeah. So naturally, since my time with the realignment, I've been in those circles to an extent in, in a lot of what's called the new right circles, mm -hmm. where there's a real skepticism of free trade and you know free market fundamentalism mm -hmm. on the right. It's a very real skepticism that divides intellectuals. And so I've been in those circles and I'm still in those circles, full disclosure. So I have friends who are involved in the new right institutions and are very committed to the new right agenda. And there are things I'm skeptical about. I'm very close to soccer politically. So I'm mm -hmm. a critic of the new right on some things like the fealty to Trump. Mm -hmm. And some of the cultural rhetoric to me is, is a little out of touch with regular Americans. Like there was one time on, on Twitter, I know, very elite platform. <laughs> I came out in support of gay marriage and my yeah. position on that remains unchanged. And totally. I, took a lot, I took a lot of heat from that from people on the right even though 
gay marriage at this point is an 80 20 issue support yeah exactly. that's yeah anybody yeah. yeah just at a practical level yeah like that's and not so, you're wasting your breath if you have a problem with it at this point yeah and a lot of the new right people get so bogged down in the culture war that sometimes they lose sight of some of the other important economic questions mm-hmm. and then just partisanship and having too much fealty and forgiveness and apologetic tone towards the Republican party. Mm-hmm. Like I think that the realignment is a very real hypothesis, mm-hmm. but it's almost devoid of an economic element at this point. It's very much a cultural realignment. Mm-hmm. And I, to- I understand that if you're a slightly culturally conservative person and you're seeing what's being brought in by people like AOC on the cultural front, and you say that you're going to be, vote for Republicans now in opposition to that. I, I understand that. And I'm sympathetic to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the new right seems to be ascendant. And there's a lot of really bright people on the new right. And I, I have been embraced by those circles, which is mm-hmm. nice because it's hard for me to find a place anywhere else, basically. Yeah. Because Yeah. But yeah, I think that there are very real critiques and some of the left's critiques of the new right are very accurate mm-hmm. as well. But at the end of the day, I do think that, I don't think the new right is dead per se, but I think that Trump has the potential to kill it if he wants to. And I think that's really what is going to be the ultimate determinant is just how much who who does the best at pandering to Trump because ultimately that's what the Republican Party is at this yeah. point is really the whims of whatever Trump is thinking on a given day. Yeah, I mean it seems like everybody's sort of waiting to see if he's going to announce, and that's you know a big element of it. It's also also clear that there are people who have who are hostile to Trump have entrenched their positions both in the media and within institutions. What do, what do you think the sort of the left critiques of this ascendant right, what do you think are their, their best critiques of that movement? Yeah, I actually think the best critiques come from the people who really actually have interacted with and try to understand the new right. Like mm-hmm. Sam Adler, Bell's show, mm-hmm. the Know Your Enemy podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. In these times, had a very good interview with Lauren Cass. He mm-hmm. went back and forth on worker policy and a whole assortment of other economic questions with Hamilton Nolan. So I'd recommend those too. Okay. That's, and there's, so I always feel like the best critiques come from people who actually have real dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also the independent minded voices who sort of drift in between those two camps. Like mm-hmm. Greenwald has very much been floating around in new right circles. Yeah, he's sort of a free yeah. agent. Yeah, he? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to understand how I view the world, Glenn Greenwald is what is one of my heroes. Uh-huh. Very much one of my heroes. And I will defend him as much as humanly possible. Totally. So yeah, I'm a big reader and supporter of him. But yeah, so the left critiques on some policies on the new right are very precise obviously the trump part is very true yeah because there's been a lot of coping on the new right about the trump years and 
part of the new right strategy is to pander to Trump as much and as shamelessly as possible in political primaries. Yeah. People who are very populist, people like J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, who do have some very good issue positions, are have completely bent the knee. They, they're saying Trump won the election and they, they're touting support from people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, crazy types people. So I think that's obviously the glaring critique with the new right mm-hmm. is the Trump factor. And I think they would respond by defending Trump and defending his record in ways that I don't think are really accurate per se, mm-hmm. because Trump's biggest legislative accomplishment at the end of the day was a corporate tax cut and yes. the trade deficit did go up mm-hmm. and the, the wage increase, the slight wage increase we saw was very much fueled by state and local minimum wage increases mm-hmm. that were codified into law. And, you know, trends like wealth inequality and job outsourcing, all of that went up during the Trump years too. And so then, yeah, there's a lot of coping on the new right around that. So that's really the, the left's most accurate critique. And then on some of the cultural issues, they're very wildly out of step with where the normal American person is. Because I think it's easy to react to wokeness and say, look, this is really bad. America is all for cultural conservatism and mm-hmm. we're a Christian nation. And some of that's true. There's some of that when it comes to the repulsive content that's being shown to children in schools mm-hmm. and banning it. America's generally for that, for that, getting rid of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Americans seem to be supportive of that. But there's a big leap that comes afterwards where instead of saying, look, people are pretty moderate and tolerant and are have widely accepted the values of the civil rights movement, there's a big leap mm-hmm. where they think that a very right-wing cultural restoration would be popular in the electorate. And I don't think it would be. In- no, I don't think it would be either. I think that's... And then, yeah, even... And then there's a lot of talk about the populist Republican base. And I think that's there. That is there to an extent. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a lot of it is just about Trump at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And then there's some policy level critiques, very wonky critiques of of proposed bills and various think tank programs and stances, much more wonky stuff. But Mm -hmm. vaguely, I would say the critiques from there are some very valid critiques from the left and I could go on all day about the very, very strong critiques of the left by the new right from people like like Michael Lind. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's a, he's a standout in terms of perspicacity, by the way, just so listeners know, we, we talked about Michael Lind as a descendant of Christopher Lash in the latest Patreon episode. So if you want to check that out and hear about that and go there because the chapter in The True and Only Heaven is very much mirrored by the chapter against the authoritarian personality section of Michael Lynn's book. So just a little shameless plug in that moment. You know, I think to me, like when I listen to sort of the, the new right and, and what's happening on the left, what's clear to me is that it's not entirely obvious what like the new centrism is going to be. 
And I think there's going to have to be one in order for business to get done. Like, yes. What do you think about that? Yeah, so there definitely is a gaping hole, both in terms of our political discourse and in general, what is popular in this country based on polling. Because if you look at the polling, it's true that vaguely redistributionist, you know, more fair, more nationalist economic agenda is what a lot of working people, a lot of the American voting population wants. Right? But at the same time, that is very divorced from what people want on the cultural issues. People value things like family and church and mm -hmm. tran transcending things like race and gender. Mm -hmm. People aren't, the idea that somebody will buy into the economic populism, like there needs to be a cultural populism too that taps into what regular people want their country's heart and soul to be. And so mm -hmm. I think what happens is that those two sides get split off from each other. So there's a massive populist independent center, mm -hmm. a radical center that has no real representation amongst the electorate or intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And so that's people who are very heterodox. And I think that we're starting to see the emergence of some intellectual discussions on that front. And, you know, it would be great if the IDW and anti-woke crowd could develop a class analysis. Mm -hmm. That would be nice. <laughs> but I think it'll but have you, to But take... you're not holding your breath. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not holding my breath. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I sort of the basic like cultural moderateness is I think the thing that both sides misunderstand, because, you know, I came out of the left as well. I've been a product of it is that there seemed to be this idea that like organize and they will come. You know, like the working class will suddenly realize they're actually these cultural revolutionaries as well, you know, as we campaign for things. I don't think that's been borne out at all. And I think that you're right that the, there's sort of this mirror problem on the right, where she's like, ah, they hate CRT, which means like they're, you know, going to be like anti, I don't know, whatever pet cause, cultural gripe somebody has, you know, they'll be against gay marriage or something like that. And I think the major issue people have with the woke stuff is that Americans tend to be don't step on my blue suede shoes types. They're like, no, what I don't like about this is that it's telling me exactly who and what yeah. I have to be, you know, yeah, like, exactly. and, and both sides are sort of like, you're going to be this, or you're going to be that. And most people are just like, I kind of just want to be like left alone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just I just want to be, be normal, annoying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, to me, it's sort of like the digital platforms don't really allow for a lot of that because they thrive on basically like obviously virtue signaling on both sides and extremism, you know, because that generates clicks. I mean, on breaking points, you know, Sarah and Chris will do a good job of covering a lot of what's going on with big tech and, you know, the monopoly problems there. I know they're both fans of Matt Stoller's work in that domain. Big fan of his myself. Yeah. So what do you see as like the digital political future? Like what are the problems? What do you think should be done? Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting because the way we take in information and think about and discuss political issues has been completely changed by the fact that the place where our political elites hold discussions is on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so I think actually one of the big strengths of the Biden campaign is that Biden himself 
for some good reasons and some bad reasons was not really online. Mm-hmm. Biden didn't really pander to online rage donors or mm-hmm. Twitter cloud or really do that much on that front. And you know, don't get me wrong, it's important to do campaign marketing and targeted advertisements online, mm-hmm. but you need to get your campaign message from from real people, right? Not mm-hmm. the Twitter audio or what is going to be fashionable on the blue check side. Mm-hmm. That was a big problem for Bernie in 20. And then also for Trump is that they were too worried about how people were going to react to the campaign online instead of thinking really about the regular voter who is not tuning into the news 24 hours a day, like how I get paid to do and how so many other people do. The average voter is not uh, super duper engaged. Like there's a, the people who watch Breaking Points, for example, for a lot of them, we are their news source Mm -hmm. and they trust us to deliver accurate information, but they're not the kind of people who will go surf Twitter for two hours every day following what every single debate is or what every Mm -hmm. person is saying. And so I think it does create a gulf like Chris Arnott actually talks about this a lot. Highly recommend reading all of his work. Mm-hmm. Just how completely separate the dialogue is on Twitter from what people actually care about. And so I think everything that happens on Twitter needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And it, it matters because the elites talk on there. The elites have a lot of power. Mm-hmm consensuses get laundered like all sorts of things happen that are worth paying attention lives can get ruined on twitter right but but if you think of it as like this representation of popular understanding or will like that's where you misunderstand what the realness of twitter is exactly yeah twitter's twitter is real life in a sense because it's a forum for elites Mm -hmm. but it's not very very connected to what the regular person is concerned about on a daily basis Right. So then like the main way that Twitter becomes real life and becomes something that's connected to regular people is when stuff that happens on Twitter becomes news, mm-hmm. becomes leads to news stories and leads to articles and ends up becoming part of the media, the broader media ecosystem that connects with working people. Yeah. And, and so there is an interesting feedback loop there mm-hmm. where something will happen on Twitter and then media people report on it the way it usually works. Something happens on Twitter and smaller outlets will report on it. And then it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until mm-hmm. it becomes a story with the big outlets. Mm-hmm. And by that point, Twitter has very much become real life. Mm-hmm. But when something is happening exclusively on Twitter and doesn't become any bigger than that, that's when it becomes very insulated. Mm-hmm. Totally. So how do we handle this problem with uh, big tech? Like, it seems like there's an appetite for going after their monopolies from Amazon to Facebook to whatever, but there doesn't really seem to be a lot of clear vision as far as I can tell, but maybe you know better than me. What have you seen? Yeah, so I think that when it comes to big tech, there's a group of people, especially in center-left liberal circles, more mainstream Democrats, whose main gripe with big tech is that they don't censor enough mm-hmm. and that they don't have enough, con- they don't have <laughs> yeah. enough control yeah. over big tech. When right. we already have people from Facebook and Twitter going from those companies straight into the administration and back out into the tech sector. Right. So I think 
the center left liberals who actively want to have more control over tech companies are really the biggest barrier in the big tech discussion because mm-hmm. you can't get anywhere when you're both frustrated about something for completely diametrically opposed reasons. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one critique of the new right is that the frustration for them at big tech, a lot of it starts and ends with the censorship of conservatives, mm-hmm. which is a real grievance, but censorship is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the abuses by tech platforms, mm-hmm. because those platforms have pretty much unilateral control over billions of dollars in commerce, mm-hmm. how much or how little of a product you can sell, advertisements, and a whole, a whole assortment of communication that and fundraising mm-hmm. that is not explicitly something that will affect the political right. And those companies have come together and colluded to crush Parler, which was a conservative alternative to Twitter that was becoming very big. And so I think that the big tech problem on social media when it comes to information is very real and needs to be fixed. There's been plenty of good proposals put together. And just from the social media point of view, independent of all of the economic power that the tech companies hold otherwise, mm-hmm. I am a fan of the common carrier notion mm-hmm. that social media companies, because of their networking effects, their reach can't really be replicated, mm-hmm. if you will. Like Facebook exists in countries that Americans don't even know exist. And I don't yeah. think Gab or Parler or Getter is ever going to have that type of reach. Right. And I think Twitter, all of the elites are on Twitter and they're not going to leave. And so I think that to, no matter how many conservatives make accounts on Getter, they're all on Twitter still. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the network effects of those companies are built into the, the market of social media and business model. So I'm a fan of the common carrier. And so for people who don't front. know, what's sort of the common carrier? Yeah. So the common carrier idea is something that applies to cable where the government will say that they will permit cable companies and publishers to have very, very wide ranging power and control in the markets in exchange for being tightly regulated and, and monitored, making sure that like, you know how with cable, you can't have a cable provider take Fox News off of its network, right? right. Like Spect- Spectrum can't say to Fox, we're kicking you off because mm-hmm. we don't like Sean Hannity. Right. That's because there's laws in place that prevent that type of thing from happening. And so I think we need to have a similar type of regulatory framework for tech firms. And I'm not really an expert on sure widgets, but yeah. vaguely that's what I'd like to see happen. And then on the economic front, obviously, I think there needs to be breaking up of entities like Amazon Prime that have way too much control over the market Mm -hmm. and the surveillance needs to be completely the corporate state merger that we see in a lot of economic policy, state policy. No place is that better represented than in the surveillance state Mm -hmm. where intelligence agencies with no regard to constitutional rights will contract out 
to big tech companies in order to essentially monitor the American people. We just mm-hmm. saw the CIA got caught to nobody's surprise. Yeah. Right. Spying on us domestically. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, just dismantling that surveillance state is obviously another big priority and not just on the tech level, but on the governmental level. I think that FBI, CIA, NSA, and all of the other intelligence agencies really do need to be reined in. But that starts with reining in big tech. Yeah, I think that that's sort of a missing piece to it is people are like, well, I don't like the deep state. And it's like the mistake you make is thinking that these government entities are discrete and separate from these larger like information hoarding private actors out in the world, you know, because to me, it's, it's sort of like the thing that I worry about or I've become worried about now is the way like kids and especially teenagers interact with these platforms Yep. And, yeah, and even on the algorithmic front, and yeah. we've seen how these companies have manipulated their product to generate a maximum amount of addictiveness and mm-hmm. essentially capturing people's attention and capturing people's minds. So that's another element to it too that needs to be monitored and focused on as well, kind mm-hmm. of limiting the addictiveness component of tech companies because Sometimes I feel like I, I need to check my phone or I need to sure, go yeah. on Twitter, go, go online and see what's happening. And I think th- that there's been a lot of whistleblowers and experts coming around and saying that, look, this is not your fault. Your brain mm-hmm. has been rewired deliberately by mm-hmm. these companies trying who profit off of every second you look at their screens, your screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, and I mean, it's not just that, right? Like, well, it's like, that's one element of the desire. It's the desire to even use it at all. But then there are all of the subsidiary desires that come out of what you're using it for, you know, like maybe I'm showing conservative colors here, but I'm like very worried about the types of, frankly, like, disturbing elements of pornography that people get introduced introduced to at a really young age and that that feeds this addiction mechanism like if we care about the family that means we have to care at some level about basic human intimacy and those things don't seem to fit in the same world together where you have loving partnerships that help produce a stabilized society while also having like insane hyper fetishized porn addictions in an incredibly shady human trafficking adjacent industry oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i think what gets lost is in the porn discussion obviously i don't condone any of the business practices and i'm pretty repulsed by a lot of it but nobody asks why are men not just teenagers who are Mm -hmm. horny on the internet and are being exposed to something they don't know anything about not just the Morty Smith types who use porn for very teenage reasons, but why are older men, because older men in their forties and fifties, those guys are also hyper users. users. Yeah. Yeah. Hyper users. Yeah. People who get addicted to porn. Why are people like that going towards porn instead of 
getting their urges satisfied in other areas. Like why are, you know, why does America have such a sex recession right now? Why can't young men find love? Why is the amount of men getting married that are really good bachelors for marriage declining? Mm -hmm. Why do men feel alienated and trapped and are getting into all sorts of terrible sectors of the internet? And so you are right that the larger questions about why do people even start using this stuff in the first place, mm-hmm. looking for things like friendship and community and even and pleasure mm-hmm. and fun and, and a, a good fulfilling way to use your time. Those broader level questions, there will take, it will take more than reigning in tech companies and Absolutely. fixing some policy to yeah. solve those. Like yeah. the crisis of masculinity and American men is not going away no matter what we do to porn up. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's this problem where people are like, oh, the crisis of masculinity. And some of them have this like meme idea. Like they're, they're a man in a Frank Vizette Frazetta yeah. painting, like Conan wielding a sword. And it's just like, why aren't more American men like this? And it's like, yeah, that's a weird thing to wonder because most people just are never going to be like that. The question is, when we say masculinity, and you can tell me if you have a different interpretation of this, is basically a question of role. And like, what role do, do men have? What should it be? And what, what position do they play in society? Yeah, I think what role do men have in their communities and what role do men want? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was recently listening to uh, Andrew Yang's show. Mm-hmm. Always liked Andrew Yang. He and seems like such a sweet dude. He's, yeah, he's, <laughs> you know, like he just seems like a, a nice guy. On his show, he, with his producer friend, Zach, they go very deep into this on one of their episodes about the issues facing masculinity, mm-hmm. everything from behavior in school to mm-hmm. crime, drug usage, depression, alcoholism, all of that stuff is overwhelmingly male. And I'm not saying it's easy to be a woman and that. There no, no, we've talked about it on the show before. To women, yeah, but yeah. We're, but there we're are very, very real, troubling. distinct issues happening to men right now. Mm-hmm. And one reason why there's op- there's cultural components to that, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the women are doing really well, relatively speaking, in educational outcomes, mm-hmm. in in their careers. Right? Women are making more money than ever. Mm-hmm a second wave feminism has pretty much won out at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Delivered the goods on a lot yeah, of fronts. The, yeah. The, fe- the feminist wave of the 1960s that was put into law during the civil rights acts and title nine and all of that stuff has worked pretty much like American mm-hmm. women are doing very well. Mm-hmm. The issue is just that American men are falling behind. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is, an economic issue because women tend to do more service sector professions like teaching is mm-hmm. the most obvious example and it, and men tend to be more inclined towards working with their hands and when mm-hmm. you ship off manufacturing jobs that are overwhelmingly male mm-hmm. just because of the nature of the job mm-hmm. not because women can't do the job but because of natural preferences those are almost all male jobs that get lost. And then the rise of fatherlessness 
which is a big problem. Mm-hmm. The people who get impacted by that most are young boys when it comes to the, their behavior and their growth and maturation. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for boys to grow up with no male role models around them mm-hmm. because every man has a beast inside of them. And it takes a lot of growth and mentorship and understanding to learn how to tame that. So mm-hmm. I think that's another element to it. And then, yeah, it's, it's really tough because men are much more isolated than ever before. And there's so many different factors as to why that you can't blame on porn or you can't blame on, no, you can't blame on feminism or any easy out for what is causing American men to feel that they need to go to things like alcohol and, and porn and other drugs mm-hmm. or to extremist ideologies much more so than women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, it remains a, a troubling question. It feels like there's not a lot of guidance for young men out in the world. I think that's very painful. I, I lucked out and then I got sober very. And so I immediately had a bunch of older men showing me how to be a person in the world in my 20s. Very rare experience in a number of ways. And it's only in looking back that I realized, A, how lucky I was, and B, how I shouldn't have had to have been lucky at all to experience something like that. And I think, I, I think, like, wherever we're going next, obviously, these questions need to get handled. I think you're right in that it'll take a lot longer to tease out what exactly is going on here, but that just even starting with certain political actions of breaking up the stranglehold of major corporations over broad swaths of our social life is at least a step towards figuring out how to solve those downstream effects at all. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm not discounting the effects that policies like breaking up tech companies would have, but it it's not everything. Yeah. It is only part of the equation, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a much, there's almost like a spiritual element to this that we're going to have to sort out as a country over time. So I think we'll leave it there. James, I want to thank you so much for spending time out of your day with me. This was a blast. I hope we can do it again. Yeah. I'm really thankful that I was able to be on for an extended period of time. Yeah. I think, yeah. Thankful that you let me give long-winded answers. And <laughs> I, I really like the work you've been doing on nuclear energy. Thank you. And so I'll definitely let me know whenever you want me to come back. Yeah, absolutely. And where can people find you if they want to check out yeah, your so work or reach out to you? My work is mostly done behind the scenes for breaking points. Mm-hmm. And so you can watch the show, find me on Twitter at James Lynch 32, or you can read my columns when they come out on Newsweek and elsewhere, hopefully in the future. So yeah, check me out on social media and tune into the show. Hope you like it. Sounds good. All right, everybody stay safe out there. We'll see you next time.